hope you're doing well today. Great to be together to worship. If you would turn to Luke uh, chapter 12, we're going to continue in the passage that we started last week, but emphasize a new or additional fear. So you braved the fog, thought you woke up in a different city. How about all the people who flew in expecting 75 and sunny for the game? Isn't the irony wonderful? It's just fabulous. So today, we're going to talk about worry. How much brain space do you think you would gain if you quit worrying? That was rhetorical. Many of us would gain a lot, wouldn't we? Um, Today we're going to talk about what is really the fear of losing control, which we often call worry. But before we jump into that, just a couple of moments, if we could consider fear from a little bit different angle. Each week we've been considering a different kind of fear. The fertilizer, if you will, the fertilizer of fear is ignorance. Ignorance feeds on fear, and that's what causes it to grow. Ignorance nurtures worry and gives it nourishment, if you will. This means the way that we'll find freedom from the things that we're afraid of is not to ignore it, not to pretend it's not there, not to stuff it deeper. Rather, it's to bring it out into the light and then allow the truthfulness of God's Word to speak to those specific fears. So that's all that we're trying to do in this series is highlight the ways in which fear expresses itself, bring it up to the surface so that God's word can tell us the truth about it. Because um, ignorance is what causes fear to flourish. Maybe a a illustration of that would help. I always know um, when I'm flying like on a mission trip with someone who hasn't flown before that I want to sit by them because... They're a lot of fun to mess with. And I have discovered a wonderful way to start that before the plane even leaves the ground. So I always tell someone that's sitting next to me, here's how you know if this is going to be a good pilot or not. When, when we take off, if you feel the tail of the plane hit the ground, then you know it's going to be a rough flight. And about half the time people believe me because you can feel the... Uh, the landing gear coming up into the bottom of the plane, if you pay attention. So about half the time, people really flip out and they get very nervous. Why? Ignorance. So not stupidity, but ignorance. Ignorance is simply not having the knowledge you need about something in order to be informed. And friends, you and I, apart from Scripture, are ignorant about the things of God. The Bible tells us the truth about who he is and what he's done and who we are in him. And so that ignorance feeds our fears. And so we want to come to the scriptures in order that we would know the truth. The more we know and trust God, the more life and joy and peace we'll experience, irrespective of the circumstances we happen to be in. The more we know and trust God, the more rightly we'll see and interpret reality. The more we know and trust God, the more we'll understand that his kingdom is beautiful, sure, and wonderful. So that's our goal, is trying to know God more. Today we want to explore one particular issue, and that's worry, which as I've already said is the fear of losing control. Worry causes a deep-seated feeling of uneasiness and apprehension. It prefers self-protection over loving God and loving people. It always leads to selfishness and never to what's actually good for us. Worry is treacherous to your spiritual life because, as Ed Welch says in a really helpful book, Running Scared, worry can hear many encouraging words, even God's words, and stay unmoved by them. So in other words, it's possible to be chronically at a state of being worried and then to hear the truth, even the truth of God's word and it not to have its effect on us. Why does worry do that? 
Why does worry cause us to miss God's word? It's because worry stems from mixed spiritual allegiances. We trust God for heaven, but not for earth. We think of him on Sunday, but not Monday to Saturday. We give him our eternities, but not our paychecks. We beg him to heal when somebody's sick, but we don't trust him with the stuff of everyday life. It's those realities that make such a significant impact on the state of our hearts when we hear God's word. When followers of God battle worry, what's happening internally is part of us is saying, I trust you, God. You're in control. You're my king. But another part of us is saying, I'm in control. I'm king. God, you stay away. So there is, though, a better way to live. And so in our scripture today, what we'll find is that there is a way through which worry can be toppled. So Luke chapter 12, and we'll start in verse 22. So Jesus has just finished the parable that we looked at last week. And so the context specifically is about worry, worry related to money. But we can certainly broaden that and consider it towards all kinds of worries. So Luke 12:22, And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious or worried about your life, what you'll eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Or we could add there. Or about your job or lack of job. Or about your roommate or about your car or about your health or about your marital status, or your friends' opinions of you, or extended family members that are having struggles. Don't worry about your next test at school or your safety. Certainly don't worry about the Super Bowl, or failures, or how full your schedule is, or what the future holds. The, the list we could put in there is endless, because we can worry about anything and everything, can't we? So Jesus is specifically addressing worry related to money. But you'll find as we read on that he broadens it to include anything that we could worry about. Now, why should we not worry about all that stuff? Verse 23. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do as smallest thing as that, why are you anxious about all the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not seek what you're to eat or what you're to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need him. Instead, and here we're going to have a command and a promise, and it's the, the core of this passage. Instead, the command, seek his kingdom. And as we do that, the promise follows. And these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that doesn't fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Father, we are a people certainly disposed chronically to worry. Because we live in an affluent society, that doesn't mean we're all affluent, but it does mean compared to the whole of the world, we have immense resources at our fingertips. And therefore, our pride is easily fed. It's very easy to think Whatever we need, we can find it, and we're people who are in control. And yet living as people of worry is like living emotionally in prison. 
As we consider the meaning of this passage, would you speak to us today? Would you free us from worry in order that we might trust you and honor you and live for you in such a way that it displays who you really are and what you've really done for us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In this really wonderful passage, Jesus states clearly three truths that topple worry. You don't have to be a person that's anxious and worried. And Jesus tells us here how to be people who are not worried people. The first thing he said is that life is more than the sum of our worries. This is a little bit hard to swallow, but I'm just the messenger. Take it up with him if you don't like it. Worry assumes personal autonomy as the normal way to live. In other words, worry assumes we are people who are in charge of ourselves, who can make of our lives whatever we want them to turn out to be. We worry because we fear losing control. We, we fear that the things we hold most dear to us will somehow be taken from us. But the truth is, Jesus ever so gently but directly points out here is we never had control in the first place. Life isn't about the things we worry about. The essence of life is loving God and loving people. And can you honestly say when you find yourself worrying or being anxious that that's what you're worried about? Probably not. That doesn't tend to be the object of our anxiety. We tend to get a lot more caught up on other things. Bills, grades, looks, health, clothes, what people think of us, how much money we make, on and on and on and on and on. What would it be like if we were much more concerned with expressing love towards God and then as we receive that love from Him, giving it to other people? If life was like that, worry would consistently evaporate from our hearts. Ultimately, life isn't about those things. It's much more than the sum of our worries. It's God himself at work in us and through us, enabling us to love him and love other people. So the first thing Jesus says is, look, life isn't about what you wear or what you eat, where you go to school, where you work, how much you have, how much you don't have, what that person thinks of you, what they don't think of you. That isn't the essence of life self. The second thing he says is that our father cares. So let me speak specifically to those of you in the room who are Christians, who have trusted Christ with your salvation. Brothers and sisters, your heavenly father cares for you more than you could ever imagine. He is far more concerned about the things that matter in your life than you are. He knows, he provides, The passage even says he takes pleasure in giving us what's best for us. That's a great image, isn't it? God is not stingy with his resources. He delights in giving you what's good for you. He's trustworthy. In this passage specifically, we're told that as we seek him first, then our basic necessities of life, he will give to us. That doesn't mean every want we have will be fulfilled but it means the basics of what you need to survive physically, he will provide. He will take care of. He has unlimited resources. Look at verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Friends, if we really believed that, how different life would be. Your father. Your father. Christians, you have a perfect father. And he designates himself as your father. Your is such a precious word. It is your father's good delight, his joy, his longing, his desire, his deepest want and wish and pleasure to give us himself. To provide for what we need through him. That's good news, is it not? Third, Jesus says that there's one more truth that topples worry. 
It's that there's a better kingdom. Friends, usually worry is an indicator that we're living for the little kingdom of self instead of the glorious kingdom of God. Now, when you hear the phrase kingdom of God, I don't know about you, but what comes to my mind is chubby little angels flying around on clouds playing harps and people singing and floating around for all eternity. And this might sound sacrilegious to you, but that doesn't sound particularly wonderful to me. That's not actually what Jesus is talking about at all. The kingdom of God, that phrase, which occurs over and over and over and over in the scriptures, means simply the good rule and reign of God. It's where the king, God, is with his people us. The kingdom of God is wherever the wonderful, gentle, peaceful filled reign of God is recognized and submitted to. In other words, the kingdom of God is the place where broken things are getting put back together. Where things that have been shattered are being made whole. As Kent prayed earlier, we heard pieces of that last Sunday night as we gathered as a family in our members meeting. Victor said that his parents left him in China, but he found a better father in the Bible. Allison said that her biological family stopped supporting her when she chose church ministry instead of medicine as a career. But then she said she found a bigger and better family in the church. Priscilla said she felt fatherless because her dad passed away recently. But then she realized she's not fatherless. She has a perfect heavenly father. Those are just three of literally hundreds of stories in this room of God taking broken things and putting them back together. That's what God does. That is the work of God. You see, the rule and reign of God is when God takes busted stuff and makes it whole. And in fact, he makes it better than it was in the first place. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, Christ can put you back together. You may not know it, but you are spiritually broken. The scriptures actually use the word dead. You're dead because of sin, but God wants to give you his life, your sin in exchange for his life, if you'll turn to him and trust Jesus. Now, here's the tricky part about this term or this phrase, the kingdom of God. It's pretty clear in the Gospels that the kingdom has come and yet it also has not yet come. That's a little confusing, correct? It's kind of like God is Father, Son, Spirit, and yet there's one God. Or God calls and chooses us, and yet we have responsibility to respond. The lists of paradoxes, if you will, in Scripture... Um, is not short, but that doesn't mean it's untruthful. And so whenever we encounter these things, we've got to pray and read and allow the Bible to interpret the Bible. And so the Bible tells us that the rule and the reign of God has already come. And yet it also tells us it's not yet fully here. So let me see if I could explain that. When we seek the kingdom, we're not simply asking for heaven. I grew up in a theological tradition that in essence says the essence of following God is asking Jesus into your heart so that you can go to heaven when you die. The intention behind that is good, but the Bible never actually says that. You will not find those words in the scriptures. What you do find is repent and believe. Repent and believe. What we're actually seeking when we seek after God is we're seeking to live in his kingdom now and fully when he comes. So maybe a simple illustration to get at this. Do you remember that kid's game when you hide something and then everybody tries to find it and you give clues by saying warmer, 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 or colder, colder, colder? You with me? All right. So what happens in the Gospels is Jesus says, he announces... The kingdom of God is here. And what was he talking about? Talking about himself. 
He said, I am the king. Wherever I am and wherever people are following me and submitting to me, then you'll find my good rule and reign present within you, within the individual. That's another way of saying what it means to be a Christian. And so everywhere Jesus was and people were healed or the gospel was communicated or some miracle happened, it's as though Jesus was saying warmer, warmer, warmer. And everywhere that people rejected him, where they said, we don't believe you're the Messiah, we turn away from your word, it's as though Jesus was saying colder, colder, colder. Every time you take a step towards Jesus and trust him more, you can almost hear the words, warmer, warmer, warmer. Now, how do we know that? Well, he is the embodiment of the kingdom. Look at verse 29. Do not seek what you're to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your father knows that you need them. Instead, so instead of allowing your life to be consumed by temporal things, seek what? Seek his kingdom. Seek the presence, the rule, the reign, the authority of Jesus. And he'll add all these things to you. So what is it that topples worry? Jesus is very clear. Life is more than the sum of our worries. Our Father cares for us. And there is a better kingdom. Now, those of us that battle anxiety or worry know it's not as simple as saying those three things once and then the matter settled. Correct? So... When we take in the whole of Scripture, the Scriptures tell us that we're transformed through the renewing of our minds. It's as our minds are continually placed under the truth of God's Scriptures that gradually, slowly, bit by bit, we come to actually believe what we believe. We, we come to walk in the truth instead of just thinking it, saying it, and then it passing from our minds. So I think a great question to ask at this point is what would it look like to live for the kingdom of God, not for the kingdom of ourselves? Question make sense? If we're commanded by God to seek his kingdom, to seek his good rule and reign, and yet that good rule and reign hasn't fully come, and how do we know that? Do you still see things broken? Is there still pain and heartache and death and decay and tragedy? Yes. You feel it. I feel it. We see it on the TV. We witness it at school, at work, in our relationships. There is no question there is still brokenness. And so when the king comes... He says he will settle all of that. He will put things right again. And so until he comes, our calling as believers is to seek his kingdom. So I'm going to give you a few suggestions, some practical means through which you could aim to seek first the kingdom of God. And I I tend to not want to do this kind of thing, but when we struggle chronically with worry it may be helpful to have some concrete steps to take. Not because merely taking them somehow earns the favor of God, but it will position you in such a way that you'll be receiving the truth over and over and over and thereby can live it out and trust Him more. First, may not seem very concrete, so I'll try to make it that way. But we have to be people who treasure Jesus above lesser treasures. In a way, what this passage is saying is you can spend your life concerned with money, with food, with clothing, with work, with school, with cars, with stuff. You can spend your life on that, can you not? So there is an endless amount of things you can seek after that in the end you can't take with you. They do not last. 
And so Jesus isn't withholding something good from you. He's actually inviting you into what's even better. He's saying that big TV you want, you'll bring it home, and in a few weeks, you'll want a bigger one. That degree you think will satisfy you inside and make you feel valuable, you'll get it, and for a while, you'll be king or queen of the hill. And then you're going to have to go back and get a master's and a PhD and another PhD. It will not lastingly satisfy. That person you think, if, if they would notice you, once they do, you'll get jollies for a while, but then you'll be looking for somebody else. And so Jesus knows that. He knows everything about us. He knows what life is really all about. So when he says, don't be worried about your clothes, don't be worried about your food, it's not as though he's stingy and and withholding from us good things. He's inviting us into what's even better, which is knowing him, living for him, sharing him with other people. Life is ultimately about relationships, relationship with the Father Relationship with people. We can love people because he first loved us. And so Jesus is a really fantastic king. And he wants us to live for not only what's right, but for what's good for us. And that means treasuring him above everything else. And so Christian or not, I would ask you to consider your own life. What do you find yourself thinking the most about? What consumes your thoughts? What fills the majority of your time? What are you pursuing the most? What would scare you the most if you lost it? Those things reveal what you really treasure. And all of us equally share in treasuring things that will not Satisfy. Treasuring things that are not treasure. The Bible simply calls that idolatry. And Jesus came to save us from lesser treasures because he is the greatest treasure there is. And so right where you're sitting, you can ask God, what am I treasuring more than you? And I doubt you'll hear him audibly, but he definitely can speak to the heart. And definitely reveal what you're holding more dearly than him. As he does that, a second suggestion I would make to you is to attack the false beliefs underneath worry. We don't worry just because we worry. There's truth that we're not believing underneath the worry. Things like, I'm in charge. I'm in control. I have no one. No one will help me. Life is about me. God can't be trusted. I'll never recover from that mistake. If we look underneath the hood of worry, what you'll find is an engine of lies. You'll find that worry is driven by lies. The truth is God's in charge. God's in control. We have responsibility, but we're not on our own. God is with us. Your church family is with you. Life is about God, not us. God can be trusted. And the more we reaffirm those things, the more we confess our belief in them, the more we say, God, I believe that, but there's still an element element of me that doesn't believe. Help my unbelief. The more we'll grow. The more we'll treasure him above lesser treasures. Brothers and sisters, without any hint of doubt, The scriptures tell us that our Heavenly Father has open, outstretched arms for us. His love is unconditional. His arms are open. In fact, Jesus' arms were nailed that way. His invitation stands. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Many times it's difficult to see the false beliefs that are at work in our own lives. Exceedingly difficult. 
So one of the reasons as a church we so consistently try to push us towards each other in relationship is because other people can often see your worries quicker than you can. And if you're close enough and you've built a culture of trust and of honesty, of transparency, then maybe a brother or sister could say, you seem overwhelmed, you seem stressed, you seem afraid, you seem concerned. Why are you eating Tums like Kit Kats? We can look into each other and invite each other, not in a belittling way, not in a condescending way, but in a we're all in this together. I too have struggles, but I want to walk with you. Let's read scripture together that's relevant to this issue. Let's pray together. Let's meet up and cover a book on this topic. I'm going to pray for you, email you, text you, call you to remind you of how the Father loves you and cares for you. Brothers pursuing brothers in meaningful ways and sisters pursuing sisters in meaningful ways. Why? Because we're often blind to our own worries. And Jesus is a greater treasure and would love for you to know that experientially. So seek out people who can help you. A third way we can seek first the kingdom of God is to remind each other often that risk is right. We can remind each other often that risk is right. Many of us experience remarkably little of the Spirit's living water in our daily lives because we're living for the little kingdom of ourselves. And That is a work that the Holy Spirit does not give us power to do. In other words, God's invitation to us is to live for Him, to live for what matters most, to live for the spread of His kingdom, to live not for ourselves but for Him and the good of other people. So when what's most important to us is self, then those Dams of living water get built up and the flow of the Spirit does not go freely in our lives. The kingdom of self tells us to be consumed with ourselves. It convinces us to play it safe, to not seek out that person because they might hurt us, to not ask that person if they want to read the Scriptures with us because they might say no, to not give up that little bit of money for the good of somebody else because we might not be able to buy a movie ticket. It, it tells us to hoard and keep things for ourselves. But in the kingdom of God, everything gets turned upside down. Life becomes about self-denial. We're freed to think of ourselves less often. Joy and peace get displayed not in the absence of hardship, but in the middle of them. Growth comes from pain. Servanthood transcends selfishness. So that's got to mean that things that feel risky to us spiritually many times are the very things that God is urging us to do. And when we step out and do them, shockingly, not really, that's when we experience the power of God at work in our lives. Why? Because Acts 1 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you so that you'll have a comfortable, easy, pain-free, risk-adverse life. That's the way many of us live. And then we wonder, why does God seem so far away? Why does God not seem to answer my prayers? Why do I feel empty and hollow inside? Why, when I read the Bible, can I not concentrate for more than 30 seconds? Because we're holding out, blocking, impeding the power of the Spirit. What does the passage actually say? You will receive power when the Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses 
in Jerusalem, so Tempe, Judea, the valley, and to the ends of the earth, even Texas. How is it that we experience the power of God? It's by doing things that require us to rely on the power of God. Do you want to know the joy of the kingdom? Then you've got to see Christ not merely as your Savior who will let you into heaven, but as your source of life every day. We've got to learn to treasure Jesus as our very life because that's what he is. And spend our mental and emotional and financial and spiritual energies not on the kingdom of self, but on the kingdom of God. And it's amazing what happens when we do that. When we, for example, hold our possessions loosely, which will mean we share them, which will mean sometimes things get broken, which will mean sometimes you have people in your house that are annoying, which will mean you don't have as much money as you might have if you'd hoarded it. Then we find not that we're somehow more grumpy, more agitated, more easily angered, more worried, but the exact opposite. You'll be enriched by the presence of God, comforting you, equipping you, changing you, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're living in the power of the Spirit, which the Spirit is going to lead you into things that feel risky. And the more you say no, the quieter and quieter and quieter his voice seems to get. And the more you say yes... The more he asks, but the more you're invited into what really matters, what is tremendously joyful. What could be better than helping and participating in the spread of the gospel here and around the world? Nothing. To live that kind of life, we need each other. God understands that this kingdom that we're talking about is a spiritual kingdom. In other words, you can't see it with your eyes. We're not talking about the expansion of land or military territory. We're talking about something spiritual, something deeper. And that's hard to see, is it not? There are times when we're expending every ounce of energy we seem to have, and it doesn't seem like anything positive is happening. And so God knows that we need each other. So he invites us into relationship to encourage each other. He says, don't forsake getting together, but continue encouraging one another as long as it is called today. In other words, until he returns. So that's the work we set out to do together. Help each other obey the king, submit to the king, study the king, follow the king, trust the king, tell others about the king, pray for the king to come, enjoy the king, not to get stuff from him, but simply because he is the king. And a final suggestion is to be people who meditate often on the ever-true word of God. Remember, worry flourishes in ignorance. So we got to fill our minds with the truth of Scripture. And the more we do that and actually trust and believe what we're reading, the more worry will become less and less and less and joy will become greater and greater and greater. Let me show you a great passage that can remind us of that. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 27. We'll end today by reading this and then simply praying together. So Psalm 27. Psalm 27. Before we read it, I would say to you that 
If you're a person that struggles with worry, anxiety, which is likely many of us, you have a good God who knows and who loves you. Think of the tone of what we've looked at today, not as harsh condemnation, but as God with open arms saying, come, trust me, I love you. I'll forgive you. In fact, I already have. Psalm 27 perhaps helps us get at that tone. And my own experience has been when I'm struggling with anxiety, one of the most helpful things I can do in the scriptures is to simply read them and as things come to mind, pray about them. So praying the word of God back to God has a remarkable way of transforming our minds. So I'd like to demonstrate that for you. This will likely be the longest prayer you've ever heard in a public setting, which says a lot about our trust in ourselves, not in God. But as I pray, I would invite you to just read through the passage with me. If you nod off, someone will nudge you. And let's see if we can be encouraged in the scriptures together. Lord, you are our light, and our salvation. And if you as king are our light and salvation, then what sense does it make that we would fear? You are the stronghold of our lives. Of whom shall we be afraid? When evildoers assail us to take from us When our adversaries and foes come upon us, it's those who don't trust in you that will ultimately stumble and fall. Not because we're somehow better than them, but because you have forgiven. Though it feels as though armies of hardship gather around us, we will tell our hearts not to fear. And when we feel fear, Lord, by your strength, through your spirit, we will submit that fear to you and trust you. There are some here today who are fearing how they'll pay rent. There are some here who are fearing they'll never find a spouse. There are some here who are fearing that what they did and they've never told anybody about will be held against them and they won't get into heaven. There are some here who are fearing never finding work. There are some here who are fearing a person. And though those things seem to war and rise up against us, we can be confident in you. And God, the scriptures say that there's one thing that we should ask of you, one thing that we should seek after, that we would be in your presence all the days of our lives, to gaze upon your beauty, to inquire of you where you are. And yet we would be people who admit that we often want so many things besides that. We are far too easily satisfied. Our problem isn't that we want too much, but that we're satisfied with too little. We're content with money when the spiritual riches of heaven are at our disposal. We are content with the gaze of people when we could enjoy the attention of the king. We enjoy the company of many who are not following you instead of being in your presence with a few who are. We spend an inordinate amount of time seeking to look a particular way physically 
when we could simply sit at your feet. So together, as a, as a faith family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we would repent together of seeking everything but you. And we would pray that as we leave today that there would be a renewed commitment that we could honestly say, one thing I've asked of the Lord and I'll seek, that we could be where you are. That's not speaking spatially, of course. It's talking about having hearts that are open, soft, quick to respond to you, quick to listen, slow to speak, and deeply invested in the Word of God, in the people of God. God, we trust that you will hide us in your shelter in the day of trouble, that you will conceal us, that you will lift us up. We praise you that now our heads will be lifted up above our enemies, that you will offer us your protection, that we'll make sacrifices with shouts of joy, we'll sing and make melody to you because you are so good. So God, would you hear us? Would you be gracious to us? As we've said, we seek you. We seek you, Lord. Don't hide your presence from us. Thank you that because of Christ, you will never turn us away in anger. That you are our help, that you have not cast us off, that you have not forsaken us, that you are our salvation. And God, there's some in the room that know the pain of a father and a mother who have left them. I don't know what that feels like. But God, you promised to take him in. Father, teach us your ways and lead us on the path. Give us up not to those who would want to harm your work. God, we believe that we'll look upon your goodness. And while we wait for your kingdom to come in full, we will wait for you. By your strength, we will be strong. Through your spirit, we'll take heart and wait for you. God, we thank you that we do not have to be people consumed with anxieties and worries and fears. We thank you that you've not left us to ourselves. We thank you that you even sent yourself to take upon you all those things that we've sought instead of you. And that as Christ died, all the consequences we deserve for the things that bring us worry and fear and anger and doubt, you took upon yourself. And the exchange that we get is your very life. So I pray over my friends, my brothers and sisters, that we would trust you. That we would not be adverse to risk that we would live for the spread of your kingdom, not our petty little stuff. We thank you that there is a way out of worry. And that way is by seeking you. And we pray that as we do that, that we would do that well with each other so that your glory might spread not only in this room, but beyond Tempe, Arizona, and even to the end of the world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you'll use that model as a way of intaking the scriptures and pointing your heart back to God. Allison Belt, Built, I messed it up again. Come on up. Allison is... 
our newest resident here at Church on Mill. She is helping serve with the youth. She's also a college student. We're thankful for her, correct? Allison's going to send us out, and our prayer is that you would go and enjoy the lack of worry and the peace that you can have in God. Allison. Hello. Great. Um, I wanted to read 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Jesus, it's not a natural thing for us to want to give up control. Uh, We feel weak. We feel worried. We feel scared. Um, But when we give up control and when we allow you to work in our lives, that's when you are strongest. That's when your grace and your mercy appear to us most. Uh, So, God, I just, uh, I pray over my church community. I pray over my church family. I ask that you, you bless them with your power and their weaknesses and you bless them with um, an ability to give up control. Uh, I ask that you remind us of this throughout the week um, and just remind us of the little ways that we can give up control, God. Because when we do that and when we don't worry about our circumstances and our lives, we show you to the world. Um, And I just ask that you help us show you to the world more and more uh, because of your great love for in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a great day.